For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. How are you doing with all this gloomy environmental news? Last week's episode on Extinction Rebellion was definitely confronting. Hope you'll forgive me. (laughs) This one I'm seeing as the antidote. It's all about climate hope and how we can feel more courageous and positive about our own activism. I just wrote a story that ran in British Vogue about climate anxiety and how to beat it. And we'll share a link. But I basically wrote, look, sometimes I cry about the koalas. Mostly, though, I'm too busy doing to allow the existential crisis to take hold. It's normal to feel fear, frustration, anger and sadness in the face of the climate crisis. But there are ways to transform those emotions into eco-activism. Now, I recorded this show a few weeks ago before I left for London. And at that time, which was still spring here in Australia, there were fires raging in New South Wales and Queensland. And around the same time... There were headlines full of stories about fires in the Amazon. But, you know, it doesn't matter if it was then or now. Extreme weather stories are always everywhere. It seems like they're coming more often and more severely, whether it's droughts or hurricanes or floods. And then there's all the other scary stuff. The IPCC reports about species loss and catastrophic warming. All the stuff around how our food system is insecure in a warming world. The question is, how do you deal with it all? There's so much to worry about when it comes to the environment. Now, I myself do struggle with this, although you'd never know it to read my Instagram feed. I'm at Mrs Press, by the way. But if you look at me on there or you listen to me being perky and full of hope about activism, you'd never know that sometimes I'm really freaking out about what's going on in the natural world too. But the thing is, we know that harping on about that doesn't work. It doesn't bring people with us. Show someone a starving polar bear and see if it motivates them. No. What motivates us is stories of people making a difference, getting on with it and showing what can be done. So that's kind of why I don't tend to whinge about the overwhelm. I figure it doesn't help. I figure it's for behind closed doors. And I said I do sometimes cry about the koalas. (laughs) I definitely cry about the forests. In fact, the other day I was coming home and our neighbour has this amazing magnolia tree in its front garden and someone had bashed it in with a van by mistake and I went there and bashed on the door and started freaking out going what have you done to this magnolia tree to me it was like this metaphor for nature and for what's happening with our forests and this guy looked at me like I was bananas but then I came home and cried at my husband about someone else's tree and he said to me seriously wife calm down you can't rescue every tree and it's not even your tree Anyway, I share that with you to show that I'm also only human and sometimes this stuff does get everyone down. A while ago, I did post on Instagram about feeling blue at the state of the world and I was surprised how many comments it got. You told me you feel the same. 
You shared your frustrations at government inactions and companies making things worse, but you also shared your tactics for beating it, these environmental blues. A lot of people talked about the need to switch off. I mean, sometimes being glued to your phone just makes it worse, right? But you also told me it's about being in this together, being vulnerable, admitting when you feel bad or defeated, but on the other side, sharing the wins. And this is what's inspired this week's show. It's with my very inspirational good friend, the Australian climate activist Anna Rose. And it has absolutely nothing to do with fashion. Shamelessly so, we didn't even mention it. Yep, I can get away with that, even though this is a fashion podcast, because I'm my own boss and I can do what I like. (laughs) Oh God. Anyway, I think you're really going to get a lot out of this one. It's all about courage, why it's important, how we can get some and how we can use it to change the world. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast and please consider rating and reviewing it and sharing it in your networks and on social media. Anna, you were the person who taught me this pearl of wisdom. Start where you are. In that spirit, I want to take this literally and describe where we are. (laughs) Well, we are sitting in a creek bed. We are in Camarega land, which is part of the Eora Nation. And today this area is known as the North Sydney region. So it's a beautiful place. We've got some brush turkeys nearby. We've got a beautiful rainforest all around us. And we are about five minutes walk from my home. I can see birds. On the way here we saw the turkeys. I can hear birds. You can hear the creek in the distance. It's not far away. Mm. We're in the dry bit. There's moss on these rocks. It's slippery. It's raining, which is good. Originally, I was like, oh, no, it's raining. And then I thought, well, oh, yes, how wonderful. We need this rain so badly. We do. When I said start where you are, what did you mean when you told me that? What was the context? That is my advice for many people who say, what can I do on climate change? Because it's such a massive challenge and figuring out where you can make the best impact can feel like a daunting task. So I was given that advice when I was a high school student and an environmental campaigner came to my school and gave a talk about all of the issues facing our planet and I went up afterwards and he said, start where you are, you're in school. So I set up a little high school group. We're going to get into your story, but I want to just stick on this forest topic because as we record this, the whole world is thinking about forests and I'm talking specifically about the Amazon rainforest. As we record this, the Amazon is burning. There have been more than 74,000 fires across Brazil this year and nearly 40,000 fires across the Amazon. And that represents the fastest rate of burning since record keeping began, which was only 2013. But we're seeing terrifying scenes on the news. It's really upsetting, isn't it, to watch these fires and to read about what we stand to lose? Yes, it is upsetting. It is devastating. It's not just the Amazon as well. I mean, Australia has a huge rate of deforestation. We're not protecting our forests and lots of clearing going on in New South Wales and Queensland in particular. So when I hear about the Amazon and other things happening at the moment, the permafrost melting in the Arctic, it just makes me really determined to focus on what I can do in my sphere of influence. And Unfortunately, there's not much that I can do about the Amazon, but there are things that I can do about what's happening here. That's why I wanted to get you on this podcast. You and I are good friends, Anna, and you actually were the spur to make me write the book Rise and Resist, which I mentioned in the intro. But I wanted to record this for a very specific reason, to address this 
collective freaking out and fear and I think depression and anxiety that so many of us feel when we hear this terrible climate news and to talk about one of your ideas that you've been working on framing. I can hear the birds, it's so nice. <laughs> what is this idea that you have that you'd like us to focus on? I would like us to focus on courage. And as you said, many people are freaking out and there's a lot of fear. And courage doesn't mean that you can't freak out. I mean, it, it is a natural response to what is happening to our earth, to our home. But courage is about pushing through that, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and into your challenge zone and figuring out how you can exercise your power to help make progress on these issues. Let's talk about courage as a concept. Well, let's talk about courage as a word first because I love it. My mum's an English teacher, so I, I love learning about the roots of words. And courage, Same. Oh, my excellent. <laughs> and courage comes from, well, originally Latin, but then the French word, la coeur, which is the heart. the heart. And I believe that leading with our heart is such an important part of courage because there are barriers to us taking action on climate change and all the other issues we care about. And we have to be guided by our heart in being brave. But the other part of the word courage that I love is that it contains the word rage. And we should I be angry. Never I that. know, right? Heart and rage together. Isn't that powerful? And I think that's part of what we need is a bit of a wake-up call about what's going on to our planet we should be angry it doesn't mean we have to act in a way that is angry and alienating people but in terms of what drives us heart and rage I think has a place there I want to get onto anger but how do we foster courage and what happens if you don't feel very brave great question and often I don't feel brave yeah but I have to do things that I know are important and for me I love inspirational quotes <laughs> I know it's really <laughs> I love cheesy. that you reckon a quote child's gonna help us come on good well, this is what's your favorite I have three and they rotate depending on the situation I think the first one that I came across somewhere is a uh, Chinese proverb those who say it can't be done should get out of the way of those already doing it yes <laughs> I love that. And then another one, I don't know where this came from, but it popped up one day. It's only called impossible until it's done. I love that too. Yes. Oh, hi, brush turkeys. There's two brush turkeys just walking past us. Join us. us. Oh, well, <laughs> they, they have can... such great gates, don't they? They, they walk really well. lovely. Well, they can hear my third one, which is maybe my favourite. If Brittany could get through 2008, I can get through this day. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I just think, you know, there are people who are facing really tough things and I am you know, sitting here in this beautiful forest in a really privileged position in the context of how most people in the world are living their lives and I have a responsibility to use that. It's interesting to look at that word responsibility in this context of courage but also of overwhelm. I mean, mm. maybe that can be a helpful thing. I want to look at overwhelm a bit because I think while it's all very good to talk about being brave and to be strong and we need to do that and we need each other to do it, overwhelm is real. People really feel that some of this stuff is just too much. I mean, climate grief is a real thing. You recently did an interview for an Australian magazine talking about courage and you mentioned overwhelm. You were asked what you do about it and you admitted, you know, sometimes I feel terrible too. It's hard enough to get out of bed in the morning. I've got a lot to do. 
you said you'd been struggling with health problems, you've got a young son. It's not always easy for everyone just to be courageous, is it? Mm, no, it's something that you have to work on. And I think of courage as a muscle that you can build up over time. And certainly sometimes I'm lying there in bed in the morning. It's, I have this ridiculous... I wake up at 5.30 most days. I have tried everything, but I just can't. I think it's the fifth-generation dairy farmer thing in my family. <laughs> it's genetic. You know, as soon as I wake up, I am hit with everything that I need to do just in my head popping up. So it is a choice. It is a choice that we make every day to not just get out of bed but use our abilities and our networks and our influence and our unique skills and talents to try and make the world a better place. We all have a different capacity to do that. I am really lucky where I'm in a position where I can focus on this work full time. Not everyone can. That's okay. You don't have to. You might have an hour a day. You might have an hour a week. You might have a few hours on a weekend. But making that choice to at least dedicate some of your time to tackling the climate crisis is an incredibly important thing to do. And I would add to that, find your people. Um, you mentioned how quotes can inspire us. Anna, you inspire me, but also all the other people that build this movement together. I feel that once you realise you're not alone and that you're part of this movement, mm. that in itself is such a spur, isn't it? This is the biggest global movement in history. There's an amazing writer and thinker, Paul Hawken, who did a project a few years ago where he realised no one had counted the number of organisations working on environmental justice and, and social justice too. And so he worked with a group of people to do an inventory and he found that there were so many, it was over a million organisations in every country on earth, in every place on earth, people coming together to be part of the solution. Much bigger than the civil rights movement, much bigger than the anti-slavery movement, much bigger than women getting the vote, any of those previous global movements that you might think about in terms of sheer numbers, this is the biggest. And actually, there's flies now, but flies are also welcome in this ecosystem, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Just maybe stop flies. buzzing near the mic. No, hello. Welcome. <laughs> um, it's so important for us to remember that all of the bad news, of course, we need to hear it and it's jolting and it's terrifying. But the way that our news networks work is they don't tell us the good news stories, mm -hmm. you know, because we live in a shock and awe cycle. Yes. What's going to get clicks? Hawkins shares all these wonderful, inspiring stories. They just don't make news headlines. Mm. Things like, I can't think, what do you... Well, renewable energy-powered microgrids, uh, feeding algae to cattle to massively reduce methane emissions, sustainable buildings, solar panels on schools, community gardens. There are so many positive solutions out there that people are working on every day. And when we're looking at fostering courage and making ourselves feel like it's possible to get up and do this work in the morning. We do need to hear those stories of success too. We do, we do. And most of the content out there in the media about climate change, it is about the problem. And if you are lucky enough to stumble on something about a solution, it's probably about the technical solutions. And what interests me is the human side of it and what motivates people and groups to come together and decide to be part of solving it and that's what I love to focus on. Positive stories are one of the ways that we can deal with the overwhelm but I want to ask you personally Anna how do you deal with that? You mentioned that you feel the same way it's a human thing to feel that everything isn't possible sometimes. How do you deal with climate anxiety in particular and what's now become known as climate grief? 
you know, when we're talking about those terrifying headlines, 12 years to act or less than 12, 11 years to act, the sixth mass extinction. I mean, for me, that species loss issue is heartbreaking. That's the one that gets me crying. For me, hope is a strategic decision. I decided probably, oh, I've been working on this since I was a kid. I probably decided 15 years ago that, yes, there were awful things happening and that they probably would be for a long time. But I was going to choose to believe that it's not too late because we have a non-linear climate system and we have a non-linear political system. So it is just not accurate to say definitively that it is too late. What do you mean by non-linear? Linear change is like incremental change where A leads to B leads to C. In our climate, we have feedback mechanisms, which are scary. But the earth also has an amazing ability to heal itself. So we can't say it is too late. Scientists still have hope in many areas that if we can change the policy settings, you know, plant more trees, stop burning fossil fuels, protect our soils so they can absorb carbon, look after our oceans, redesign the way that we live to reduce the huge amounts of carbon pollution going into our atmosphere, then Earth has an amazing ability to regenerate. But then politics is also non-linear and we see that around the world. I mean, some of the outcomes we've seen in America, in the UK, in Europe, things in are happening absolutely that no one predicted and that conventional political scientists said this would never happen. It, many very unpredictable things have happened, but that means that they can go the other way as well. Mm. And we've seen that throughout history in every country. We can have immense changes in a very short period of time, especially if there are social movements of people making it impossible for the status quo to continue so that's why I think hope is a strategic decision no one's going to join a movement that has no hope you also told me that you were the origins of this quote that I often throw out on stage while admitting that I don't know exactly where it came from empirically but you said to me about nine percent is there about nine maybe it's about ten percent of people that you talk to about the perils of our impending climate crisis will say let me join that movement mm. most of them are running those movements <laughs> but the other 90 percent is basically saying no 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 if you hurl all that misery at me i'm just going to carry on regardless doing what i'm doing mm. i refuse to take it on you need to give them hope yes hope is a really important part of any social movement why would people make sacrifices push themselves out of their comfort zone get up an hour earlier to you know write that email to your politician that you've been meaning to if you don't believe it can change something and any of your listeners who are behavioral psychologists will be able to confirm this that no one wants another problem except an activist <laughs> i have one more thing to say about climate anxiety which is that i often think about this quote from the Indian ecofeminist Vandana Shiva. Oh, so much amazing work she's done. If listeners would like to listen back to shows that we've made about cotton and I'll refer you to the episode with Catherine Hamnett and also the episode we did with The Sustainable Angle and we'll share some links. Amazing. Well, Vandana Shiva says, I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against... If you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that itself creates new potential. 
And then she says, and this is the thing that you should write on a piece of paper and stick on your fridge right now. I've learned to detach myself from the results of what I do because those are not in my hands. The context is not in your control, but your commitment is yours to make. And that can be a challenging thing to get your head around if you're a bit of a type A control (laughs) freak personality like myself. But when it comes to climate change, we can only control our efforts not the total outcome. But actually, this is very relatable. I've never heard that quote, but I mean, I do love her. She's incredible. But that is a very relatable thing. If you think about how we try to grow as humans in our relationships, one of the things that you learn as you get older is you can't control how Mm. other people react. You can only control how you behave. Yes. And that is something that when you're a kid, you don't understand it. (laughs) That's the getting of my wisdom, just understanding that actually, I can't control how you behave, Mm. but I can control how I react and how I behave. Yes. And if everyone does better when it comes to climate and exercises the power that they do have, then we are massively increasing the odds of making progress and solving this. Collective action. Yes. I've got a quote for you and I wrote it down. And pre- this we one I prepared earlier. It's, day. I it's love quotes this. all day, but you love a quote title. In fact, that's my challenge to listeners. Make us some quote titles from this episode because they will inspire Anna to yes, keep going. Mine's it. from Rebecca Solnit. Oh, I... Oh, she's the best. So my friend Clara Vulicic, who is a sustainability advocate and expert in the fashion space, bought me this book recently. It's called Hope in the Dark. It was actually written after the Iraq war, so it's old, but then she's written a new essay uh, for the latest edition. The book begins, your opponents would love you to believe that it is hopeless, that you have no power, that there's no reason to act, that you can't win. And she goes on to make the case that, of course you can. And she writes, it's important to say what hope is not. It is not the belief that everything was or will be fine. It's not a sunny everything getting better narrative, though it might well be counter to the everything is getting worse narrative. But if you want to sort of dig deep into these ideas of movement building and how we need to harness hope and courage, I would suggest reading Rebecca Solnit. And then when you've got a strong stomach, read your mate Bill McKibben, The End of Nature. God, that's a hard one. I love both of those books. I love the Rebecca Solnit book. It's in, I think it should be a critical text for anyone who's thinking about social change. The other thing about Bill is, this is potentially not the most inspiring quote, but he does say, look, the odds are against us. Damn it! But as morally awake people, we must do everything that we can to change those odds. Bill should not have called his book The End of Nature. It haunts me. Mm. (laughs) Sorry. But thank you, Bill, for the work you do. His time's come, hasn't it? I mean, I think this would now be a good moment to segue into your story. Anna, you began your climate activism, as you said before, at school. You were a kid. We're going to get on to another one of those who's currently making waves. But tell us how you started with all of this and maybe lead us towards your connection with Bill McKibben. Sure. Well, I grew up in a farming family on my mum's side. And so I spent a lot of time on farms as a kid. And in high school, there was a really shocking drought in the state that I was from. And it was at the same time that in my science class, I learned about what was happening to our climate, the damage that was being caused by burning fossil fuels. And you told me that you, as a kid, you wake up thinking there'd be no more water. We won't be able to continue mm. to have the farm. There'll be no water in the taps. You know, that's what kids think when they hear about this. And, and you know what is happening now in Australia? Mm. There is no water in the taps in mm. parts of Australia. Yeah, they're trucking in water to a lot of regional places in New South Wales, the state that we're in now. And in high school... I learned about the damage that was happening to our climate and 
we had a year eight lesson on the science of climate change and it was at the same time that the drought was really devastating my family's farms. So I made that connection of this isn't just about polar bears, this is about people, this is about water, this is about how we grow our food, whether we can grow our food into the future. But I felt very powerless for about a year. How old were you? I was 14. And I see a lot of kids struggling with it today as they learn about it. But just to put that in context, this is a long time ago. I mean, Mm. how old are you now? I'm 36. Then climate change was not routinely taught in schools, but the drought and your family connection made you, I guess, hyper-aware of what was happening Mm. here. Because I was seeing it and living it. I felt powerless, but someone who came to my school gave me this advice start where you are so I set up a little group at my high school and we lured people to come along with free biscuits to our meetings which is a critical part of any social movement biscuits (laughs) free food so it's a green group like a recycling or composting Uh, yeah we we did recycling we did composting I convinced our principal to set up a new school sport called environmental activities which involved stop stop a sport well I was not sporty (laughs) and so we just (laughs) thought you know how could we get out of sport and save the planet and so we set up this group which we were allowed to do things with in, in our sport time. But that's actually strategic thinking as a kid. That you were able to get <laughs> set up as a new sport. Two birds, oh one gosh. stone. Probably the wrong analogy, sitting in the forest with a few birds <laughs> around us. But uh, yes, it was really fun. And we ended up taking on BHP, one of the world's biggest mining companies, who wanted to build and mine about 30 minutes north of our school. And that was a big focus of my youth was stopping this mine and working in partnership with the Warramai people, the traditional owners and some other local groups. And by the time I finished high school, we won. The mine didn't go ahead. The place was protected. It was handed back to the Warramai people. And that really taught me that change can come from the bottom up. In many countries in the world, we have the ability to use our voice and create change. Now, Anna, I interviewed you for Rise and Resist and I would encourage readers to buy my book or get it out of the library. You should, it's so good. Thank I've been you. giving it to people. <laughs> but you can read all about how this campaign unfurled and how these kids really did make a difference. But also, and I think this is so interesting, the power of an early win, because it taught you it's possible, didn't it? Mm. By the time you got to university, I mean, you were a seasoned campaigner. <laughs> I, what did you do? Yeah, I, well, I threw myself into student activism on environmental issues and ended up working with a group of young people to set up a group called the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, which was actually based on an American group that I had come across when I was in Canada at the UN Climate Talks called the Energy Action Coalition. So if you're in America, check that one out. And again, you were a kid. You were 21, 22? Yeah, I was in my final year of law school then. So yeah, early 20s. I am bad at maths, but probably 21. Came back to Australia took the words Energy Action Coalition, scratched them out, wrote Australian Youth Climate Coalition because why reinvent the wheel? And we set up a youth-led organisation that is now 120,000 young people, one of the biggest, probably the biggest climate change group uh, in this country and is part of a global youth climate movement that has been so inspiring to watch grow and flourish. We'll share some links. I mean, what the AYCC does is absolutely phenomenal. I asked you about your connection with Bill McKibben. Perhaps you might touch on the strategies that you and other university students employed around divestment. Mm. Well, I met Bill and the other 350 founders when I was in the States getting the inspiration to set up the AYCC. And I'm just going to interrupt you. If you don't know what 350.org is, we'll share some links. But it's an amazing organisation that was founded by Bill McKibben and is active all over the world. Many of you might have heard of divestment which is taking your money out of things that are causing harm to the planet. And that was really kicked off by an article 
that Bill McKibben wrote in Rolling Stone magazine probably six or seven years ago now, but it was a fantastic theory of change in that we could practically take money away from the fossil fuel industry by changing our own banks and superannuation and insurance to companies that didn't invest in fossil fuels, but also do it as part of a social movement if we got universities or local councils, local governments, workplaces, big corporates, anyone who's the got Tate a large corporate in the UK, Absolutely. universities, any institutions mm. that might invest in fossil fuel companies. Yeah, exactly. Move the money, money talks, right? Exactly. And so that's really taken off around the world and it's been a huge success story. And it has not only practically moved the money, it's also helped change the way people think about fossil fuels, it's undermined the social license of coal and gas and oil. Okay, I want to get back to youth because your story is rooted in you starting out as a kid. I mean, it's just phenomenal being 14 and changing the world. You actually <laughs> said to me once, I think 14 is the best time to become an activist. Oh, it absolutely <laughs> is. Right now, the world's eyes are on the school strike for climate movement and on Greta Thunberg as the, I guess, unofficial leader. Perhaps she's the official leader. She has been on the cover of Time, the cover of Vogue, the cover of GQ. I mean, name them, ID. She is having a phenomenal impact and cutting through and the movement that she is associated with is happening everywhere. Why do you think it's been so effective? It's interesting that you called her the leader. Well, I said unofficial. I would She's call, become the face of it, hasn't she? She has become the face of it, but I would call her the catalyst ah. rather than the leader. Yeah. And I was actually reading an article by Rebecca Solnit over the weekend about this, about the challenge of living in a society where we feel like we need leaders and heroes. And, and also got the pedestals, we, the pressure we put on mm. the you know, unelected, <laughs> didn't seek it, face of it. Yeah, I think the power of Greta is that she catalyzed and inspired hundreds of thousands, millions of other young people. And certainly she has not sought to be, you know, this hero pedestal person, but because her actions have been covered by the mainstream media in a way that other young people who've done similar things in the past haven't. And I think that is because we're at a moment in history where concern about climate and the climate crisis is at an all-time high. It sparked the public imagination. Tell us the story of the kids in Castlemaine. Oh, yes, the Castlemaine kids. Which is? So Castlemaine, little town in regional Victoria, near where you were in Ballarat the other week. And it is, yeah, a tiny little place. I, I went there on my book tour and a group of kids decided that they were going to replicate what Greta was doing in Australia. And that was the origins of the Australian school strikes, which have been making waves here. One of the most lovely images of hope that I recall seeing in recent months was of the school strike kids from Castlemaine, but they'd all gone to launch the campaign and they were jumping up and down on the steps of the Victorian Parliament. And just seeing these kids, like 11 years old, 12 years old, jumping up in the air, exuberant, full of hope, with a message. You can't ignore it. There's something very powerful about a young person who we, as jaded old adults, attach the idea of innocence to taking on these big issues and doing it with a smile. You can't say no. Although Scott Morrison, <laughs> our Prime Minister, does say no. He says, less activism, more school. Mm. Mm -hmm. But there's something, isn't there, about the power of the kids? Yeah, it's a moral power, a moral clarity, a strong voice. I work with farmers and it's a similar power in that 
people who are on the front lines and young people are certainly on the front lines. Farmers are on the front lines. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here in Australia are on the front lines. There's no vested interest there. It's literally fighting for your survival. I'm glad you mentioned First Nation peoples. I would like to talk a little bit about what we can learn from them globally and how we can be good allies to Indigenous rights struggles on the climate front. First Nations people around the world are at the forefront of this fight for climate justice. So from First Nations leaders in the United States who were just so courageous on the battle against the Keystone Pipeline and in Canada as well. Obviously India, we talked about Vandana Shiva and the amazing movement of of Indigenous women, particularly in India, who have been for many, many thousands of years um, protecting nature and standing up for nature. And here in Australia, we've got the Northern Territory gas fracking issue. We've got the Adani mine, which has had huge leadership from First Nations community. The fight for the bite. Um, Mm -hmm. I was in South Australia last year as that campaign stepped up, desperately trying to not allow drilling in the pristine and really dangerous waters for drilling of the Great Australian Bites. And again, Indigenous voices are at the forefront of that fight. Mm. So there's so much existing leadership in the climate movement. And then for people who are not First Nations people who are in this space or wanting to work into this space, it's really important to ask how can we be effective allies. There's a great website by a friend of mine, Claire Land, called Decolonising Solidarity. It's relevant wherever you are in the world. There's a little matrix of how you can start and some of the things you can do and the lens through which you can think about being an effective ally. But I'd say, you know, start by finding out what country you're on, who is exercising leadership on environmental issues in your area, how can you support them? And one really small thing is just finding out who these groups are and donating to them because it's one of the most under-resourced parts of the climate movement, but it's one of the most important. You have been something of a mentor to Amelia Telford, who's one of the leaders of this organisation in Australia. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, Millie is an amazing young Aboriginal woman from Bundjalung country up in the northern rivers of this state that we're in, New South Wales. And I met her when she was in high school. I went to her school. I had heard about the amazing work that she was doing. You were like that Wilderness Society person oh, yeah. that came to your school. Well, I ended up doing a lot of school talks because it had been so important for me as a young person to have someone come to my school. I thought, well, I've got to pay that back. And so I've probably done over 400 school talks. SEED is Australia's youth Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander climate justice organisation. So it mobilises young First Nations people across Australia to be part of the climate solution and to support them as they stand up for climate justice and fight coal and gas projects on their land. And it's a really amazing example to everyone in the climate movement around the world because obviously First Nations people are dealing with so much intergenerational trauma and grief and structural barriers you know, at every level, economic barriers, political barriers, yet you have this incredible courage and leadership being shown. And, of course, in the Pacific. Mm. Incredible leadership happening from particularly a group called the Pacific Climate Warriors. Everyone should check them out. They have been supported by 350.org as well that we spoke about earlier. But for these Pacific islands, this is a matter of 
life or death. This isn't just, you know, is wine going to get more expensive because it's harder to grow grapes in Australia? It's we will not have a place to live. So, yeah, that's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night and that makes this fight so urgent. The darkest time comes just before the dawn and we have to keep going. comes back to hope being a strategic decision. Now is certainly not the time to give up. Now is the time to ramp up. And in all of these political situations where we have leaders who do not, you know, seem to be caring at all about our planet, we have one silver lining which is it's usually at times like these where movements get turbocharged and more people get involved and they realize oh I thought things maybe were going to be okay without me getting involved but they're not and so it's time to step things up. There is a framework that you might find useful if you're struggling with where to start and it's a framework that came about through a process that the Climate Action Network Australia did a few years ago The five areas where you can think about making an impact is one, building a movement. So what groups can you get involved in? How can you exercise power as part of a collective? Second, change the story. We need to get people thinking about climate change by incorporating it to things that people care about in their everyday life. Fashion. We haven't even mentioned fashion as a fashion podcast. Yeah, we haven't. Yep. Three. Three is shift the money. So we spoke about divestment, but how can you be part of shifting the money out of fossil fuels and into renewable energy? Four is changing the politics because that is the space where decisions are made about our emission reduction targets and how we're going to grow our food and build our cities and the transport systems we use and where our energy comes from. We cannot solve this without changing the politics. And five is about reducing the power of our opponents, which are those people who wake up every day and say, how can I make more money out of a system that creates climate change and makes this crisis worse? So that is the five-point framework. And maybe you want to do a little bit in all of them, or maybe you just want to focus on one. Can I add a sixth? Yeah, sure. Why not? (laughs) Make some quote tiles. (laughs) Thank you, Anna Rose. Love it. (laughs) It's getting hard My parents feel that I'm defending you We tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you